Well, good morning. Man, it's great to be with you, South Campus, to our North Campus, our online family. Just incredible to go on this journey as we help each other take our next steps with Jesus. Now, I want to start this morning <clears throat> excuse me, with a question. It's a simple question. You're going to think I'm setting you up, and I'm really not. Though I think there's a depth we need to go to here in this. Everyone can participate. Really simple. Question, how many of us want to be blessed by God? Raise your hands. That's almost everyone except like old school Baptists that aren't going to raise their hand no matter what we do in church, right? Come on, I know who you are. Even our online people were raising their hands to that reality. Come on, we all want to be blessed by God. We don't necessarily know all that that means, all that that entails. There's probably things we have in our minds of what it means, but we at some level want to be blessed of God. Here's the follow-up question. How much do we want to be blessed by God? How badly do we want the blessings of the Almighty? I mean, think with me for just a moment. The word blessed and its various derivatives like blessed and blessing are actually common words we use in our society. They're church words, and most of the time, specific church words don't translate into society, but we use them often throughout our society in day-to-day -day life. Like when someone sneezes, we say, bless you, right? We don't know why we say that. It is just an act of kindness in our culture. By the way, one theory of why we say bless you when someone sneezes dates back to the Middle Ages. Supposedly in the Middle Ages, they believed that when a person sneezed, their soul left them for a moment. And Satan could snatch your soul after a sneeze, so a kind person would say, bless you so that your soul wouldn't be snatched by Satan, which would be an awesome thing. Just to be clear, that's not in the scripture. I still say bless you when somebody sneezes, but it's not because I have a concern for their soul, at least when it comes to their sneeze. When we sit down at a table, we often ask someone to say the blessing, right? We want God to bless our food. By the way, with some of the stuff we eat, just imagine for a second some of the stuff we put on our plate. And then we say, hey, would somebody bless our food? Ask God to nourish it to our body and our bodies unto thy service. Bless this food to the nourishment of our body. Don't you think with some stuff we put on our plate, we say, God, would you bless this food? And God's up there going, like, really? Is that what you want me? Like, I grew up on gravy. I'm not going to ask you how many of you did that, but I grew up on good old southern cooking. At some level, it's because we had to. We didn't have a lot of financial resources, so there was a lot of filler food. That's what happens often in societies. And so I still have a taste for gravy. Like, I like me some gravy uh, on a lot of stuff, but I know what it does to my body. And there'll be times where I have, like, the big old Mary chicken fry hangs off the edge. You know what I'm saying, right? Some of you are saying it can be lunchtime, too early. Got all that gravy on it, and I want to say the blessing, but part of me thinks I should be praying, Father, forgive me. And I do know what I'm doing right now. You know what I'm saying, yeah, right? Come on. Blessed, bless, blessing. All good words. Don't quit using the words. But let's admit something. When we say them, we say them rather casually. Like when I ask you, do we want to be blessed by God? Well, yeah, I want to be blessed by God, but it's pretty casual in our thoughts. Listen to me. Many of the things that our soul aches for, maybe things that in our minds we cannot even begin to describe, things that we long for God to bless us with, they actually must be fought for. 
They don't happen casually. They don't happen easily. They are promised to us by God, but they don't happen to the casual. And before you dismiss me as someone who just doesn't understand Scripture, I encourage you to grab a Bible so you can look at Scripture. If you want, you can get your Bible turned to the first book of the Bible. If you're at our physical campuses, we always have black Bibles underneath the chair in front of you or underneath your chair. We're on page 27, the 32nd chapter of the book of Genesis. It says in verse 22, that same night, Jacob, really hear this name, Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. Now, I need to do my best to give you the backstory of this text so we can really understand the intensity of what's going on. But it's going to take a little bit to do it. Jacob is a major player in the book of Genesis. Like, if you want to read his story, which would be good to do this week, you got to go back to Genesis 25. You're going to have to read all the way to Genesis 35, and you're going to have to look throughout Scripture to see all the ways he is referenced. Because often God is referred to as the God of Jacob. But believe it or not, it didn't start that way. Just an aside, one of the reasons I believe in the inspiration of Scripture is that the Scripture is so honest. It's honest about its heroes. Like if you read Genesis 25 through 35 this week, you're going to be reading along and you're going to think, this is like a stinking soap opera. Just all the stuff going on, all the dysfunction. You ought to read Genesis 30, 25 through 35 to get ready for the holidays. Because you won't feel like your family's that dysfunctional in the scheme of life. It's like, hey, that's Isaac and Jacob and Abraham. Those are the big guys. And dude, look at their family, right? Ours is doing okay. I mean, it really does read this way in life. If the Bible were written by mere humans, the heroes would come across as really good. They wouldn't be honest about them. I mean, we'd probably do to the Bible, if we humans wrote it, what we do at a funeral. When we give a eulogy, we talk about all the good stuff, very little of the bad. But the Scripture doesn't do that. The Scripture is immensely honest about the weakness, the failures, the frailties of the heroes of faith because that's the reality of who we are. It tells me that God has to be ultimately responsible for that. That's just an aside, aside over. Jacob was the youngest of twin boys to Isaac and Rebekah. His papa was Abraham. So often the patriarchs are referred to as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The twins were born so close together that as his older brother Esau was coming out of the womb, they said that Jacob reached his hand out of the womb and was grasping onto the heel, the foot, of Esau as he came out. And so that's where he got the name Jacob. Jacob, literally in the Hebrew, means one who grasps the heel, which I'm sure his parents thought was a really fun name given the birth circumstances. But as irony would have it, it is also an idiom in ancient Hebrew. One who grasps the heel is the image of someone who is a deceiver, a swindler, a cheat. And the name didn't just fit the birth situation. It fit his life. Like, in families of that time, the oldest son would receive a double portion of the inheritance because they were going to grow up, be the patriarch responsible for the family. They got two parts of it, and such it was called the birthright. Jacob swindled his brother out of his birthright. Not only did he swindle his brother out of his birthright, the eldest son, with the passing of the patriarchal role onto them, actually received a special blessing from their father on the father's deathbed. Jacob deceived his dying father. 
He deceived Isaac when Isaac couldn't see, couldn't hear well. All those things, he deceived him to get the blessing of the eldest. Jacob so messed over his brother that his brother was overheard saying, as soon as dad dies, I'll take care of Jacob. I'm going to get rid of him. Jacob heard this, talked to his mama. His mama said, you better get out of town, boy. And so she sent him to be with her brother, a guy by the name of Laban. While he is doing business with Laban, he continues his deceptive way of life, but he also reaps a little bit of what he sows. Like he fell in love with Laban's youngest daughter, and as would be the norm of that time, you had to pay a dowry for a daughter and to marry into it. So he agreed as his dowry, since he had no money, that he would work seven years for Laban. He worked seven years. They have the wedding. He does the wedding night, wakes up, wrong woman in bed with him. It's the oldest daughter, Leah. He gets cheated. You got to read that story, man. So he goes out and says, what's up? And there's a whole story, a whole back thing. And he says, I still want to marry Rachel. And Laban says, okay, seven more years. So he labors 14 years for what was the original seven. However, the whole time he's being swindled by Laban. See, I told you, this is like a soap opera going on. You're like, what's going on here? He is also doing the same thing to Laban. Like he was the chief shepherd of all of Laban's um, herds. But at the same time, he wanted to start his own side hustle, a little bit of his own business in sheep. Laban said it was okay. And he said, all I need is a spotted and speckled sheep, which would have been uncommon. But what he would do is he would find the strongest sheep. He would put them in front of the water. And when it was breeding season, he would put strips of poplar, poplar and almond bark in there. And supposedly, that would make them breed um, more speckled and spotted sheep. I don't know that it did that, because later on we hear from the text, it was the favor of God that gave him more spe speckled and spotted sheep. But he didn't know that he thought he was creating it so he was taking the strongest sheep breeding them to be his sheep and he was taking the weaker sheep and making them his father-in-law sheep 14 years go by he's doing this he finally has his family they're doing all that they need to do and he wakes up and his flocks are huge they're as big if not bigger than Laban he knows Laban's going to find out and he's going to want to know what in the world has happened how in the world have you taken all my riches? And he thinks, probably based upon what Esau wanted to do, this boy is going to want to kill me. So he decides he needs to leave. But you got to remember, he now has a big business. He has large flocks. He has family. He has employees. He can't just go anywhere to graze that kind of flock. And the only place he can go that he has any right to is back to Esau, back to his inheritance, the inheritance of Isaac. We are in a catch-22 when we get to the Jabbok River. Jacob is like, if I stay here, Laban's going to find out, and Laban's going to be done with me, but if I go back, I know it was 15 years ago, but Esau said he was going to kill me, and it appears that Jacob decides to take what seems to be the less of two bad options, thinking maybe time heals all wounds. I, I don't know. Jacob and his entourage are on the way back to the land of his inheritance when our passage begins. It's probably the toughest spot in Jacob's life. Because what's happening is this. All these years of doing these things that are wrong are catching up with him. But when he started doing those things, it was just him. Now it's not just him. Now he has a family that he loves immensely. Now he has wealth that he can lose. Now he has employees that count on him in life. And it's in this place where he's at the most difficult place of life. When he crosses the Jabbok, he is back to the land of Esau, back to the land of his forefathers. And it's in this place that Jacob meets Jesus. Look at verse 24. 
and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the break of day. And I know you're thinking, dude, the text says right here it was a man who wrestled with Jacob, not Jesus. But in the Old Testament, on occasion, sometimes a man is not merely a man. And we know this is in this case because we keep reading the text. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, I understand that verse 25 seems to be a strange verse because you're thinking what I'm thinking. If the man, quote, can just all of a sudden touch Jacob's hip, whoop, knock it out of socket, why didn't he just open a can of whoop on him a lot earlier, Right? Why did they prevail all night? Hear me. When the text says that the man did not prevail against Jacob, I don't think it means that he couldn't have won the wrestling match. What it means is this. Jacob didn't quit. Jacob kept fighting. Jacob kept battling. He kept wrestling. Why? Jacob knew the man wasn't just a man. For then the man said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless. Somebody say bless. I'm just not going to let you go until you bless me. Jacob knew this was God. We, looking back, we have the privilege of interpreting the Old Testament through the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus. We know this wasn't just merely a man. We know that he was Jesus. It's what scholars call a Christophany which means an appearance of the Christ before he became incarnate, before Christmas. And what we see throughout the Old Testament is long, be long before Christmas happened. Christmas isn't the beginning of Jesus doing what he does. Christmas is the apex. It is the climax of the heart of God. But Jesus has always been doing what Jesus does. And what we see in the life of Jacob, there is a guy who's done nothing but cheat and swindle, turned away from the ways of his forefathers, and yet God still longs to bless him. How do I know Jesus wants to bless him? Because Jesus showed up. When Jacob needed the blessing, Jesus showed up and he allowed them to travail throughout the night. When he could have just any time went whoop and the whole thing is done, Jesus was there doing something in the heart of Jacob. See, what we see in this text, if you'll hear it, it's staggering to you and I. Jesus longs to bless us in ways that have depths that I don't think we can even begin to imagine. The promise of blessing is probably the most common promise of God throughout Scripture. And the Scripture says that no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes. Somebody shout yes. They are yes in Christ Jesus. So here's the question of the text. If Jesus longs to bless his children, why did Jacob have to travail? Why did he have to persevere? Why did he have to wrestle? If I may, why did he have to fight for the blessing? It's tied to one word, maturity. Jesus longs for us to mature so that he can bless us. And you think, well, why would I, I need to mature? It's simple. Blessing without maturity often leads to destruction. You can write down in your notes the 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is talking about a time that he had received great visions from God, great revelations from God, and God blessed him. You're going to say, yeah, if I had great visions from God, it would be a blessing. No, the blessing wasn't the great vision. I mean, the blessing was the great visions, but he also received a thorn in the flesh. 
And he asked God to take it away. And God said, no, no, if I take it away, you're going to become arrogant because of the exceedingly great revelations you have received. I've given you this to keep you humble. Because if I didn't keep you humble, you'd be straying away from me and all that your heart really ultimately longs for. So there was a blessing, and that blessing was the exceedingly great revelations, but at the same time, there was a blessing of what? A thorn in the flesh. That which we long for from God, that which our heart aches for, can actually destroy us if we don't have the character ready to receive it. We see this in our culture all the time. If I ask you, if you've ever prayed to God to give you the winning lottery numbers, I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but some of you know you've been praying real hard over those lottery numbers, right? Uh, a few weeks ago, there was Powerball, and I, I don't know enough about lotteries to know if Powerball's in the state of Texas or not. I just know I was in Florida, and Powerball was there. Man, that, I mean, I, I had a guy driving me somewhere, and I guess he said, do you want to go and um, buy a Powerball ticket? Like, he wanted to, it was airport shuttle. Like, he wanted to stop and buy Powerball tickets. I said, I don't need any Powerball tickets. Like, Are you sure? It was like $1.4 billion. We need to get some Powerball tickets. And I was like, no, we're good, good. He asked me like four times. So I'm like, dude, do you want to stop and get Powerball tickets? He goes, well, I can't just stop on my own to get Powerball tickets. I, but if you want to stop, we can stop to get some Powerball tickets. You know what I'm saying? Right? We would think, come on, $1.4 billion. Would it be a blessing if God gave you those numbers? That's a setup question, by the way. Here's what's interesting. Studies show that about 70% of lotto winners lose or spend all their money in five years or less. Lottery winners are more likely to declare bankruptcy within three to five years than the average American. What's more, studies have shown that winning the lottery does not necessarily make one happier or healthier. It actually shows the opposite. Economist Jay, I can't say his name, agrees with the research. Studies found that instead of getting people out of financial trouble, winning the lottery got people into more trouble. What we thought was a blessing became that which is a source of destruction. By the way, um, inheritances, kids receiving large inheritances, and second-generation businesses, almost the same numbers. Not absolute. It can happen. Why is this true? Why is it true? If somebody, you would just think, man, if I got $1.4 billion, but what if our character's not ready to receive that? That which we think would be a blessing to our life can actually bring destruction to our life if our character's not ready to receive it. Now, do I want the kind of character that can handle $1.4 billion? I do. Do I have that kind of character? Don't know. Never got a sudden input of $1.4 billion, but you hear what I'm saying. See, Jesus longs to mature us because there are things that are more valuable than $1.4 billion. Jesus, while he was teaching on the earth, so we're talking post-Christmas, Jesus is teaching, and he says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Now, come on, we all want much, right? We don't necessarily want to know what he means, but we want the much of Jesus. He said, whoever is dishonest with very little can also be dishonest with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy handling worldly wealth, that's just your day-to-day -day finances, who will trust you with true riches? Now, you see that? Jesus longs to give you and I true riches. Something far more valuable than the greatest amount of money whatsoever. And so what he says is this, you are given money as a training ground. Uh, opportunity so you can mature. The way we handle our money day in, day out is an opportunity to mature so he can bless us with true riches. And there's not one among us who wouldn't have said early on, yeah, I want the true riches of God. But these are things that have to be fought for. 
things that have to be battled for. Now, I'm not saying that every blessing from God has to be battled for. God does do things just to bless us. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, our Father causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God blesses all of humanity because that's just who he is. He is a good, gracious God. But the deep longings of our hearts, peace that transcends understanding, joy that's not tied to circumstances, confidence that's not tied to situations, those blessings, listen to me, must be wrestled for. And the way we wrestle for these blessings is through a simple thing called obedience. And now it gets really quiet, doesn't it? Because that is often the struggle point of the Christian life. The way we wrestle for blessing is just step after step after step doing what Jesus calls us to do. Not perfectly, but regularly moving forward. The first Psalm, many people's favorite book of the Bible is the book of Psalms because it's so honest. The first psalm says, the blessed man, the blessed woman, is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, whatever she does, prospers. Come on, there's not a one of us right now who doesn't want that to be true in our lives. We get the image. We live in West Texas. We know what it's like to have seasons of drought. And you can see across the field when there's a tree prospering when it's 110 outside. Come on, how many of you have forgotten today, because it's really cold, how much you wanted it to be cold back in July when it was 110 for like 89 straight days or whatever it was, right? Yeah, see now we're complaining on the other side. We know what the drought looks like and when you see a tree out there, you say, there must be a water source. There must be something it can draw from in life. That's what we want in our lives. We long to be blessed by God for our lives to be full of the fruit of God's spirit, lives that prosper even when the world around us is at drought. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who is like that tree. How does that happen? The psalmist tells us, blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. If you want to describe your life with three verbs, you can only do one of three things, really. You can sit, you can stand, you can walk. It's about the way we live our life. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who does not live their lives in the counsel of the wicked, does not live their lives in the way of sinners, does not live their lives in the seat of mockers, but his delight, her delight is in the ways of the Lord, the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. What he's saying is we don't play with sin. We flee from sin. When we are in relationships, and those relationships are causing us to stray away from the ways of God, maybe they're influencing us more than we are influencing them, then what do we do? We have to change the nature of that relationship. We don't sit with them. We don't do life with them because we long for the things of God in our lives. No, what do we do? We find our delight in the ways of God. On his ways, living his ways, we meditate day and night. The person who is blessed in this way, like the third verse of Psalm 1, is who delights in knowing the ways of God and living the ways of God. See, we say we want to be blessed by God, but how much do we want to be blessed? Do we have the faith that as I take steps of obedience, See, I, I will challenge 
that our struggle with the Bible is not our inability to understand it. Our greater struggle with the scripture is doing in life what we do understand. I think we stay away from the word of God. I know I do. Because there's just some honest days in my life. God, I don't think I want to do this today. I think I want to do things my way today. He already knows I'm thinking that, so I might as well tell him so we can deal with it. But there are times that I open the Bible and I'm reading stuff and I'm like, I I don't know that I want to do that. Do I have enough faith to believe that as I do what he tells me to do, that I meditate on his ways, I live by his ways, that they are going to bring blessing to my life? Am I willing to follow the leadings of the Lord? I love my life to be structured. I have calendars. I have to-do lists. What about when the Lord interrupts that? Am I willing to do that? Is this easy? No, it's a wrestle. It's a fight. But as we live a life of obedience, again, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm just talking about generally wanting to follow after Jesus, wanting to do what he does. I mean, if I ask you if you wanted the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. If I said, do you want to be blessed in that way? We go, yeah. Well, to do that, you got to realize that he leads us to the green pastures. It means you have to follow. He guides us in paths of righteousness. It means we have to obey. And as we do this and we live these ways, we begin to mature. Things begin to change inside of us. And as we mature, it opens us up to opportunities to be blessed in greater and greater ways. As we mature, Jesus can bless us with more of the true riches that he longs for us to have. All over the scripture, there are calls. Blessed is the person who. Blessed are you when. And each one of them is a call to wrestle. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It was like his coming out sermon. Greatest TED Talk ever given. If you know anything about TED Talks, they're supposed to be about 18 minutes long. You can read the Sermon on the Mount in about 18 minutes. There's nothing that comes close to the depths of it. And he started by saying, blessed are you when? Why would he say that? Because he's saying, I want to bless you. But for you to be blessed, you got to live a different way of life. Blessed are you when you're poor in spirit, when you know you can't handle things on your own, that you need me in your life. Blessed are those who are mourned, who are broken by the things of this world, because you're going to find comfort. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you're going to find the feeling and satisfaction you long for in life. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they are the ones that are going to see God in life. See, each statement is a call to wrestle. It's a call to battle. It's a call to fight, to position myself for the blessing of God. It is why our faith, the apostle Paul tells us to fight the good fight of faith. Hear me. Jesus longs to mature us. Is there a part of us that will go there? Is there a part of us that says, yes, Lord. Could we get so desperate as Jacob? God showed up Jacob in his worst spot. Do we have to wait for our worst spot? Or could we just dare say, oh God, I know you're near. I'm going to grab on. And I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And we live our lives that way. See, Jesus longs for us to mature so he can bless us in depths that we cannot even begin to understand. Depths of the riches of the kingdom of God. Now, don't be deceived by this. When I say 
God wants to bless us, God's greatest blessings don't always lead to immediate ease, comfort, or convenience. In fact, I would challenge you, it's just the opposite. If you are going to wrestle, it is uncomfortable. If we are going to live a life of ongoing obedience, we're going to be stretched. We're going to be put in places of discomfort. See, we often think when I say, I want God to bless me, it means my body is healthy. My bank account is doing better than it's ever done in life. That there's talents in my life that are just overflowing. And those absolutely can be blessing, but they're nowhere close to the totality of blessings. They're nowhere close to the greatest of blessings. I'm going to challenge that most of the things we long to be blessed by are the lesser things. And we need to hunger and thirst for the things of the kingdom of God. Verse 29 of our text actually tells us the greatest of blessings. Jacob asked the man, who he knew wasn't just a man, please tell me your name. But Jesus said, why is it you asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob named the place. Jacob named the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God, how? Face to face. If you're around Beltway Park often, do you know of a place that we talk about the face of God almost every week? At the end of every service, we hold out our hands and we say a prayer. A prayer that God gave Moses to give to the priest. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, tell his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. This is how people are to be blessed, saying, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Twice, when God said, you wanna know how to most bless the people of Israel, bless them with this, bless them that they have a grace to see the face of God. See, in ancient terms, seeing and knowing one's faith is a statement of closeness, it's a statement of intimacy, it's a statement of knowledge. So when the relationship between Moses and God is described as significant and different than most, it is said the Lord would speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks with a friend. The greatest blessing we can long for is to know God more and more. He is the great prize. And see, most of us, sadly, I can find myself disappointed because I'm thinking $1.4 billion lotto numbers or knowing God face to face. And there's a part of me still drawn to $1.4 billion. And it's a sad state of my soul that I don't understand where true riches really are. The Apostle Paul was writing from prison this great letter to the church of Philippi. And he talks about all the things of his life that he has given up. And he counted them to be manure compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And then he made this cry, Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ. I want to know the reality of who he is. I want to come out, be connected to his resurrection, even if that means I need to share in his suffering. I want to know him. I know I know him. What if that just became the cry that everything actually flows, everything we long for flows from an ever-increasing closeness 
with God. I mean, what kind of privilege would it be to know God? Not in our mind alone, but increasingly deep within our hearts. I get it that it's not all going to happen here on this earth. I know the scripture says, now we see but a poor reflection is a mirror. Then, when Jesus comes back, we shall see how. Face to face, I know that the reality of heaven is where we'll know God fully, but just because we're gonna know him in totality when we get to heaven doesn't mean we can't know him more and more here. That is why we pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is where? Heaven, more the reality of heaven can become ours here on earth. What kind of blessing would it be to have an ever-growing relationship with him who has no beginning, no end, that we can stay close and connected to him who has no limit of resource, no limit of power, no limit of ability, and whose love is more incredible than we can begin to imagine. And we're walking tight face-to-face with him. Is it a blessing we're willing to fight for? Here in a moment, we're going to go back into a time of worship. We did this very much on purpose. Because there's something about corporate worship. And I want to encourage you to engage. Corporate worship, if we engage fully, is a confessional act that empowers this life of obedience, obedience that brings maturity, maturity that brings blessing. So North Campus, South Campus, our online family, especially our online family, probably the hardest part of the online thing is worship. You hear me say that I think online services are plan B. They're not really a good plan A if you can have any other option, like you can be here physically, and it's all about worship to me. There is something about the presence of God in corporate worship that I can't get anywhere else except to worship with God's people. I want to encourage you to really take advantage of it. I ask you to not leave. Don't go get your kids. You're just going to interrupt your kids and everything else our wonderful serve teams have planned for them and every other kid. Take advantage of this time right now. Take advantage. If you're at our physical campuses, we have communion around the world, around the rooms. I encourage you to take advantage of this. But let's do this. Let's get our hearts ready. And let's just through worship cry out to God and say, God, I ain't gonna let go till I know you more. Bless me. Bless me this day. And I know what the greatest blessing is. Now, to get our hearts ready to worship, we're gonna do this. Just take a moment and bow your heads. We're not gonna linger here long. And I ask you again, do you want God to bless you? And I know you do. And I know there's a depth that we're beginning to understand here. But are we willing to fight for the greatest promise? I think of the words of C.S. Lewis, who said, when we consider the offers of Jesus, the promises of Jesus, the rewards of Jesus, it would be that our desires are not too strong, but too weak. He says we are like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And he says we are far too easily pleased. The blessings of God are much more than we know. We just got to get our hearts ready to receive or willing to battle for it through a life of obedience. It's real simple. I just want to ask, would we ask God for the grace to live an obedient life more than we ever have? That takes a measure of faith. 
Because usually we take a step of faith, then God shows himself, then we grow, then we mature. We want to mature before we take the step of faith, and it usually doesn't happen that way. It does on occasion. But most time we take the step of faith. What we can ask is, God, give me a grace. Give me a favor. I want to be blessed. And I know to be blessed, I need to have a life of obedience. I want to be like a tree planted by the streams. Leaves do not wither, produces fruit. Everything you do, I do prospers. I want to be that in the spirit. Give me grace to live such a life, an obedient life. If you are bold enough to ask God for grace to live that kind of life, and you're saying, yes, I I will take the steps that you want me to take. I know it won't be perfect, but I'll take the steps. God, give me grace. Just a hunger for more of you and to be blessed of you. Raise your hand right now. Say, God, I want grace to be more obedient in my life. Yeah, it's a tough prayer. But Father, I want it. I want it. I want to know you. I want to know you. I want to battle for you. I want to, I want to hold on to you. So Father, I just ask over men and women right now. I ask that you would grant us a grace from your spirit. That we would consider the things of this life. So many things that you've blessed us with, we consider them nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing you, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and the apostle says, for whose sake I have given up everything. Would we see the kingdom of God like the greatest of treasure? I think of the parables that you had Jesus tell. There's like a treasure in a field and a man went and sold everything he had so he could buy the field and have the treasure. Could we see the riches of the kingdom that way, oh God? And if that means in our day-to-day life we're just taking steps with you, that's what we want to do. I know it's a wrestle, but give us grace for that wrestle. Give us a persevering spirit that will not give up. Give us a grace to run after you. I know it will bring joy to our spirits, but we pray it will bring joy to your heart. We love you, Jesus. Grant grace to your people this day. Would you bless us and keep us? Make your face shine upon us and be gracious to us. Turn your face towards us. And from knowing you more and more, may we have peace, I ask in Jesus' name.